Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we examine the state of data journalism in Africa. To better understand this, we caught up with Code for Africa's Chief Data Officer, Jacobo Ottaviani, and Code for Africa's Senior Data Product Manager, Trisha Jovendazami. For those of you who haven't heard of Code for Africa, it is an impact accelerator and a collaborative Pan-African Federation of Civic Data and Civic Technology Organizations. The projects range from building big technology platforms and citizen-focused tools to producing and funding tech and data-driven investigations. Yakabo and Trisha tell us all about the power of mapping a forgotten floating inner-city slum with drones and canoes to telling data-led investigative stories covering the Nile River Basin in East Africa. We also hear about the reality of access to open data from Kenya to South Africa. And finally, we look at how demographics and low internet bandwidth can shape media consumption across the continent. This podcast is an edited version from a recording for datajournalism.com's live Discord chat held on the 29th of September, 2021. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Jacobo Ottaviani and Trisha Jovendazami. First, let's just talk about the general landscape, uh, the media landscape in Africa. Trisha and Jacobo, I just wonder if you could sort of tell us, you know, what makes it different from Europe and North America, where many of the people I think are listening today? You know, Tara, your question uh, uh, is not easy to answer, but I think the easiest way for me to answer is that there is no much difference between uh, European and North American uh, data journalism and African data journalism. Um, What changes is probably the ecosystem where uh, the methodology is being applied, uh, meaning that each African community or each African country has its own uh, uh, individual identity, individual features. Uh, And uh, it's very hard to kind of describe the general pattern here without saying something wrong. But in general, I think the data journalism uh, landscape in Africa is more dynamic very often, uh, if we compare it to the European one, at least. Um, The average age in newsrooms is uh, often lower, meaning that uh, our colleagues in Africa uh, are more open-minded to experiment with techniques that they have never seen before. Um, There is very fertile ground for innovation in Africa. Uh, But again, I think we should focus on uh, uh, individual countries and also kind of single initiatives and explore them uh, very carefully because the situation changes dramatically from country to country. I mean, I guess it's important to point out the demographics, right? It's a very young continent, but making generalizations is often something people do when they've probably never been to Africa. They say Africa as a continent as opposed to the individual communities. So I think that's a really interesting point. I wonder if, Tricia, you have any thoughts on this? Um, You're in South Africa, right? Yeah, firstly, hi to everyone. I'm so excited to be here. Just to add to Jacopo, Something about media in Africa that may be different is that in Africa, radio journalism is still 
quite big, um, you know, and I'm not talking about podcasts. I'm just talking about plain old fashioned radio. Um, and these are many are grassroots radio stations and the journalists as well, um, you know, citizen reporters, not many with uh, formal backgrounds, those who just have a passion for it and just go for it and they report. So let's talk specifically about data journalism um, on the continent. And, you know, you guys are working across 17 different countries. So give us an overview of the peculiarities that you're facing in the data journalism scene there. Okay. Um, So I think data journalism is growing in Africa. And especially since COVID hit, journalists now realize that, you know, data is really important and why they need to develop data literacy skills. So there's generally a lack of data literacy skill sets among the journalists that we work with, and many of them have very little formal journalism education. And often many journalism schools don't cover data journalism as part of their curriculum. So you have the newsrooms who never covered or never had any experience working with um, data journalism, and then you have the newer journalists that are coming out of school without getting exposure to data journalism either. So what we do at Code for Africa as well, we have um, an academy called Academy Africa, and this offers data journalism courses, and these are, of course, free. We host these uh, on a, a MOOC, which is online, and we offer online trainings as well, and hopefully this is able to bridge the gap. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, you guys could give us an overview about cross-border investigations. You know, these are becoming more and more popular in Europe because they can work across different countries and different languages. If you're a citizen of a certain country, you get access to FOI data. So I'm just wondering, what what is that like? And and I know you've worked on some of those projects, but what is going on? And, and tell us about what's happening in the region. Are there any obstacles to collaboration that you may have seen. So I think cross-borders journalism is, is going, you know, bigger and bigger in Africa. We're trying to invest a lot of energy into that because we strongly believe it can make a difference. And uh, uh, why so? Because topics, uh, as, you, as the audience probably knows, are cross-borders nowadays, um, transnational uh, Uh, trade, uh, um, international exchanges, but also issues like climate change or even the the pandemic, they have impacted the entire globe. And uh, this is really something that in Africa we can see. And we have a lot of, for example, uh, uh, intra-African migration, although in the global north, this is not uh, covered very often. Um, Most of the migrants in Africa move from an African country to another African country, which also raises a kind of an, a question about how this is perceived in the global north, for example. But yeah, African journalists can collaborate. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we worked, for example, with a network of water journalists in, in East Africa called Infonile. And it's actually a network of uh, journalists, men and women uh, from 11 countries. Uh, all in the Nile Basin region, and they're doing stories together to tell water stories. It's a very kind of specialized network, and we can see a lot of projects that are kind of creating an impact. And uh, 
yeah, they are all cross borders. Um, we have other examples, but I think there are no obstacles for them to collaborate. You know, the internet is basically uh, not everywhere in Africa, but in many, many places, like most African cities have now good internet connections and uh, people have mobile phones, as you can imagine, and they are kind of connected all the time. So although this is something that sometimes makes uh, our friends in the global north still surprised, uh, <laughs> this is really happening. And I invite everyone to see how innovative is the way uh, African journalists uh, is or can be despite, you know, local challenges. Yeah, just to elaborate, Jacopo was mentioning InfoNile that um, reports on um, the different Nile Basin countries. So there's 11 countries um, that rely on the Nile, okay? So uh, multiple communities, millions of people. So when one area of the Nile becomes um, affected, it affects the rest of the countries that now rely on the Nile River. So cross-border journalism is extremely important because they are super interlinked with each other, um, as you see, like a rippling effect of uh, how people become effect, uh, affected. We had a question here from Karen, and she's asking, what are the primary obstacles in Africa as far as data acquisition is concerned? Some countries might not have open government databases, the primary sources of data for journalists. How do journalists in Africa get across that challenge? Well, generally, there's a, in Africa, there's a lack of data where the data simply doesn't exist or it never got collected. Uh, or even if it was collected, it never was released to the public. But journalists are really resourceful. So we would spend a lot of time looking online, searching through government sites, but we won't really find anything. But as soon as we work with a journalist, over the years, journalists have built relationships with government officials, uh, with people working at government offices, people in high places, and they've really developed these relationships. They've got their phone numbers, they've got their contact details, and they're able to source documents directly from them, data sets directly from them. They're able to get a quote from uh, an official. So um, the journalists in Africa have to be very tactful and very resourceful, and them having contacts in um, government uh, departments and organizations really helps them to get data. Marvelous. Um, we also have a question here uh, from Simona. She says, when it comes to running code for Africa projects across the continent, how do you go on and about choosing which regions or nations to focus on? Do you take into account which areas you've already covered before and try to speed up, spread out more? Or do you focus on issues regardless of the region? And are some nations more challenging to cover than others? So I think we have uh, a combination of the two. So Code for Africa has offices in uh, four countries at the moment, uh, namely uh, Kenya, South Africa, Uganda, and Nigeria. Although now at the moment, we're all working from remote, obviously. Um, and, um, you know, we have some focus topics, uh, for example, health, gender equality, uh, and environment. So now we have these kind of massive umbrellas <laughs> and we're trying to uh, you know tackle issues that fall under one of or more of these umbrellas and uh, but you know in terms of choosing countries it really depends for example on uh, 
the kind of pressing issue of that specific country we're trying to tackle. So if there is a country where climate change is a, is a huge issue, we might pitch a project to tackle that. Um, we are now expanding also in Francophone Africa. Uh, we have uh, consultants and staff members in Senegal and Cameroon. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we try not to have limits. We try to kind of do as much as we can and we try to bring good impact where we go. You mentioned those four offices you have. Are there any that where it's just easier to get data or there's just more resource for this or there's just more interest? Yeah, so in South Africa, uh, Statistics South Africa, which is our national statistical department, um, I feel they are like at the forefront in Africa in terms of uh, open data and sharing their data. Most of the data is available online. Um, you can register for a free account. There's a queryable database where a lot of their survey data is uploaded. And you can select, okay, I want to look at um, certain geographies, um, certain age groups. It pulls up the data for you, and then you can download that into a, um, into a spreadsheet formal, a format, um, like an Excel uh, sheet or something like that. Okay. Then my colleagues in Nigeria often tell me that they can walk in at any time or they have the right to walk in at any time to a government office and request for data. However, the data may not always be available in a spreadsheet, which of course we always want because it will be the easiest for us to analyze the data. Uh, we worked on a project a few years ago where we were digitizing government gazettes. So some of my colleagues went to the gazette offices in Kenya and Nigeria, and literally there were thousands of hard copy documents um, just printed, lying around, uh, and some of them were in broken shelves. Some of them were getting wet under leaking ceilings. That's a bit of the reality. Yeah, but South Africa is, is there. Some of the other countries, they do have access to some data. Uh, we're also helping um, Nigeria's uh, statistical department. Uh, Jacopo may want to talk about that more. Where we're helping them get their data more open and uh, helping them revamp their website. Yeah, there's so much to do in terms of kind of uh, data liberalization in Africa. But uh, I mean, this is also something I see in, uh, in many European countries. So the type of challenges sometimes we have in, uh, in Africa are very similar to the challenges I, we have in Italy, for example, where data is not always available. There is an issue with census, I think, we should highlight. Uh, basically, according to The Economist, uh, the British magazine, uh, almost half of the continent in Africa uh, is kind of uh, counted with census that are older than 2009. So there are no uh, fresh figures about the population in Africa in many regions. And this basically is a problem for journalists, but it's also a problem for policymakers who have to kind of shape their policies uh, with data that is not very fresh and updated. So I think, you know, if, uh, I don't know, public investors or institutions could invest more into census, um, that would be great for everyone, including the media. My next question is actually uh, for Tricia, who I know you're working on a project called WANA Data. So first of all, I mean, that's a pan-African network of 500 women 
in journalism and data science working in Africa, you know, you're, tell us about that and what concrete data journalism examples have come out of this network. Wana Data, we have Wana Data chapters in different countries and we host meetups. Due to lockdown, it's all virtual. So during these meetups, um, we do uh, a training session or a talk related to data, um, data journalism. So um, any female journalist, uh, data scientist or technologist is welcome to join. Um, so currently what we're doing with Wana Data, so with Wana Data, we have so many things going on at the same time. Uh, but currently one of the projects I'd like to highlight is on the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, we've, we've just awarded um, Wana Data fellowships to 12 journalists from four different African countries. And in total, they will produce about 40 stories on the vaccination rollout in Africa. So when I mean they were awarded fellowships, they were awarded grants to write these stories. Okay. So these Wana uh, data will then be mentored by Code for Africa's data analysts, will assist them in finding data and visualizing their data. We've also trained them in using tools like Flourish and um, uploading data on Code for Africa's open data portal called Open Africa. Great. And so thinking of some examples from that, like, you know, what are some of your favorite ones that you're most happy with and, and proud of? So we have a tool called Gender Gap, uh, Gender Gap Africa. And this uh, takes data from the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Gender Gap Report. And the particular data set we look at is um, the gender pay difference in, Af in African countries. So we look at how much a female gets paid and how much a male gets paid for similar type of work, um, you know, in a particular country. So we have created this tool. Um, the user goes onto uh, the website, they select um, the country they're from, they select their gender, uh, how much they're getting paid, and then it actually shows, okay, if you were a man, so for example, if I selected I'm a female, it would say, okay, if you were a man, you would be getting X amount more, X amount less, but according to the data, uh, men do get paid um, more than women, uh, and in each uh, country, that percentage varies, okay? I notice whenever I, I train on this tool or showcase this tool uh, at a newsroom or at an event, there's always someone, and that someone happens to be a male sitting at the back of the room saying, that data is incorrect. <laughs> so that's something um, that uh, I feel like I'm really proud of because it's very uh, controversial uh, a topic, uh, but it's something we really need to tackle. It's about time we tackle that. Yeah. I guess now it would be really interesting to talk to Yakabo about, you know, one of the projects you worked on, mapping Makako. So just tell us about this and why mapping matters. Yeah, with pleasure. Um, map Makoko is basically uh, an effort to map a community that was unmapped until we started mapping it with drones. And we, we went to Lagos, Nigeria, uh, just you know, 10 minutes away from the financial center of Lagos, which is called Victoria Island. 
there is a place called Makoko where 300,000 people live, although the figure is not completely clear, but about 300,000 people live in this uh, settlement. And they have been uh, there for more than 60 years. And uh, uh, basically they kind of live in a situation of extreme poverty, even though they are like in the city center. And, uh, you know, with lack of uh, clean water, uh, lack of infrastructures, and many other issues. Um, so we noticed that on Google Maps, this, this place didn't really show up. It was like a blank spot, uh, despite, you know, the number of people who live there. And we said, okay, uh, let's try to map it. And, and that's when we had another intuition. We didn't want to map it uh, the usual way. We didn't want to parachute in with drones, do the mapping and kind of go away. We wanted to do it with the people who live there. So that's why we set up a drone mapping workshop, uh, which lasted uh, uh, not just one week, but it was like over a few months with like, uh, kind of uh, multiple sessions uh, and a lot of time spent with the community explaining what we were doing uh, and, and kind of putting together a mapping team uh, of people who went around and mapped the place. So we flew drones to collect images that were then uh, transformed into open street map maps. Um, but then we also kind of collected points of interest and we asked the local people to tell us where the points of interest uh, uh, we want to map are and map them with us using uh, mobile phones um, and a, a, a tool called Open Data Kit. So we trained uh, locals to, to do that. Uh, we made an open data map, published it on OpenStreetMap, which is uh, an open source version of Google Maps, so to speak. Um, and then on top of that, we made a large data journalism campaign, not just one story, but we kind of documented the entire process and made uh, more than 10 reportage and, and stories that were published by uh, The Guardian in Nigeria, but also by uh, France 24, uh, CNN Africa. DevEx and, and many others. So uh, this kind of became big, bigger and bigger. It created a lot of waves. And that's when we decided to continue our work and we started collecting water samples to kind of detect, uh, for example, heavy metals in the water and then continue publishing stories on our results and use this approach again and again with the local uh, community. Um, what I really like of this project is that uh, it's not just a data journalism project, but it's also a knowledge transfer project, and it's becoming a urban development project, which is something that is really, really interesting. It didn't happen before, at least to me, that a data journalism project is kind of having an impact on uh, you know, urban development. How hard was it for you and the team to sort of build trust with locals, I mean, we're, and, and get them on board to do this? Because obviously drones kind of have this complicated relationship with, with people, right? Um, because they could be used for surveillance, they could also kill people. 
So how do you bring them on board and explain to them this could be used as a tech for good, so do you will, initiative? Yeah, it, it took a while to build a solid uh, trust relationship with the people of Makoko. Uh, we have to meet many times. Uh, our colleague, John Ramoselle in Lagos, uh, played a key role in this uh, phase of building re a trust relationship. Uh, they were extremely tired and uh, kind of exhausted about uh, kind of international NGOs going to Makoko, make a quick project and then run away. Uh, they didn't want that kind of thing. So they, they kind of changed the approach with us when they understood that we were there to, to stay, and to work with them. And they also felt like uh, being on the map is a way for them to state their existence. Um, and to kind of tell the world that they are there and they are there to stay. They are there not to leave, not to run off, and not to see their rights being, uh, you know, disrespected. But they are there and they, they would like to have a better kind of uh, environment to live because it's quite polluted, there are no services, uh, they are kind of neglected. So when they understood the rationale behind the, the, the project and they, they understood that we wanted to do it not just as a kind of uh, hit and run type of project, but we were there to, to work you know, more, for more than a year now. We are still kind of doing some activities with them at the moment. They, they were open then, uh, but obviously it takes time to do that and not always is possible. Especially if you know if you work with short-term grants or, or other mechanisms that kind of don't allow you to create these kind of long-term relationships. Absolutely, and you know another issue besides urban development is also deforestation. And I know you guys have worked on a data journalism project regarding that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what that's been like? Um, so we received a fund from the Global Forest Watch, which is an initiative of the World Research Institute. Global Forest Watch has um, a really good open data platform, very interactive. It has data on deforestation, uh, primary tree loss, um, um, greenhouse gas emissions, etc. And the data goes down to subnational level as well. So we hosted a series of workshops. Uh, so uh, we had a campaign on social media. We invited people uh, from a lot of um, Central African, West African, and East African countries to apply for these workshops. Okay, So these were actually training sessions uh, where we covered everything from uh, using the Global Forest Watch uh, website to finding data from other resources, scraping data, uh, using spreadsheets to clean data, um, analyzing the data you have, visualizing your data using tools like Flourish. Uh, we also looked at geojournalism. So we looked at creating maps. We looked at using Google Earth uh, and how to interpret satellite imagery. Okay. So from the cohort of um, journalists that attended the trainings, we, uh, we asked them to pitch stories um, to receive grants to write stories. And we received uh, a number of pitches. And from there, we awarded um, fellowships to these journalists. And then we had our analysts now um, mentor them. And they produced between one and two stories each. 
um, in their country, focusing on, um, you know, depending on their pitch. Uh, it was published, the stories were published in their media houses that they had selected. The beauty of this project and what I really loved about this project is that something uh, like deforestation is so visual. Uh, we use satellite imagery, which is just brings out so much in a story. We used, um, so Google Earth time-lapse. If uh, you haven't heard of the tool, do check it out. Uh, it basically plays an interactive video of how a specific location has changed since 1980 to 2020. So you can actually see how um, forest levels have changed or how forests have now diminished. Uh, or we uh, took screenshots from uh, Google Earth Pro and then you put them in a Flourish. So Flourish is a data visualization tool. They have a photo slider template. You put the photos in there, uh, like let's just say a before and after photo or um, a photo from 1990 to uh, 2000 and let's say 18. And you'll be able to slide between those two photos and then see um, the change in land cover. Some of them were really interesting where you could see a new mining activity took place. An entire forested area was now made into a mining zone. Um, so that's the reason why I really loved this project is that these stories were really visually impacting. Quick input on the kind of nature of this project. Uh, again, it's a combination of um, reportage, data journalism, but also knowledge transfer, because we train this number of Central African journalists. Um, we try also to support them with grants. So we gave them you know, a little bit of financial support to do their on-the-ground research, travel around a little bit, uh, and then kind of spend time on the stories. Some of them were freelancers, for example. So they needed a little bit of support from us and we, we were more than happy to, to provide that. And the idea was to use this uh, amazing project called Global Forest Watch by the World Resource Institute. Uh, it has like very, very granular data on deforestation in, uh, in the world, not only Africa, but also you know, all the rest of the world, including Amazon and uh, um, Indonesia and Southeast Asia. The project was done in partnership. Uh, so maybe something we, we haven't stressed enough is that most of these projects are done in partnership with uh, uh, either other organization, local NGOs, but also uh, international data providers, uh, funders. Uh, it's always you know, teamwork. It's not just me or Tricia or, or our team or Code for Africa. It's very, very often a large kind of uh, coalition of partners. And I just wonder if we could just hear who are your favorite data journalists in the region that we should be following and that you follow. Just wonder, you know, it would be great to hear that perspective from both of you, actually. I know we're going to share some of the same ones. Um, so some of the people we work with, um, uh, InfoNAL, someone that we've mentioned, so we started working with them when they were still uh, in their infancy. So to see them grow has been magnificent. 
Uh, as I mentioned, um, they work uh, on stories um, around the Nal Basin, and they cover topics like climate change, plastic pollution, uh, very impactful. And the reason why I like it is that they really look at the local community. So they report on local villages and how they rely on the Nile Basin, how they are being affected by climate change. What are some of the solutions they are using to now help them against the fight of climate change? Um, so, yeah, I feel like they are very um, local community level uh, focused. And um, yeah, that, that's why I really like them. Well, I love Infernal as well, uh, but I want to add another one. Uh, Oxpackers. Oxpackers is an investigative journalism uh, unit uh, based in South Africa, covering environmental issues in uh, in Southern Africa, not just in South Africa, but also in other countries. Uh, we we love every time we work with them, and I think they are producing very high quality journalism. But I think Trisha and I agree that these are not the only ones we like. We like many, many of them. These are just examples of, uh, you know, outstanding journalism that is being produced in, uh, in these regions. We're actually um, out of time, but I just wondered, you know, if both of you had like a magic wand, what one thing do you wish you could change about the data journalism landscape across the continent? If we had a magic wand and could change something, uh, I mean, um, that means Code for Africa won't really have a purpose <laughs> because uh, we're trying to solve a lot of the problems uh, journalists are facing in terms of data journalists or help them produce good quality data journalism. Uh, but yeah, um, if I could change one thing, um, I would... I would want uh, there to be more initiative from newsrooms to give their employees time to attend trainings for curriculum to be adopted um, in journalism schools or universities. Um, that's that's what I would say. Yeah. What I'm going to say is going to impact not only the media in Africa, but also the media in the rest of the world. Uh, I would love to have like stronger uh, business models to make media more sustainable uh, and more open to innovation. So I think if they have, or if, you know, the more media have functioning and kind of sustainable business models, the more they will be open to experiment. Um, so I think, you know, I know that there are like many institutes uh, focusing on uh, kind of media sustainability out there. But I wish they had more resources to expand that kind of work because I think it's kind of uh, super important. Yeah, that's almost the same problem that you both have identified from different ends. The, the resource issue of not being able to get time off to actually learn this and then actually surviving in media, which are things that do impact data journalists in the end because you can't get trained up that easily when you don't have resources and you can't afford it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, those are two really interesting points. Well, thank you everyone. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but Trisha and Yakabo, you've been brilliant. It's been excellent having you on this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. 
Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.